With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Man City Show. It's Nigel Rothman back in the chair for this special podcast and part of a series of shows where I interview significant individuals with a special City connection and with a story to tell. Well, this week, someone who's been a City fan all his life a season ticket holder since the age of 16, and someone who has been researching and writing about City for over 30 years. And he's recognised as the leading authority on the history of Manchester City. It is my pleasure to welcome Gary James. Gary, welcome to the Man City Show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, listen, let's get straight on with this. Um, we'll come on to the actual book itself. But you have... How many books have you written, Gary, actually? Because there's... Uh... To be fair, I sort of lose count. Um, it's 16 or 17, I can, I can never remember the final number. Um, and there's been updates to some as well, so, I, you know, do you include those, those or not? Um, but most of my books have been about City. I've, I have done a few that have been about Manchester football in general. Uh, I did the biography of Joe Merce, of course. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been a, a long, long time. Uh, that one's on my shelf as well, which uh, which you can see behind me. I'm in my office here with my, all my city books behind me. I can see you've got one or two that Rothman is that Rothman's football year, but you got there as well. That takes us yeah, time, it? yeah. I mean, I've got a, a collection of books for all sorts of teams and, and stuff, and and Rothman's is obviously something that I've been getting um, well for, for me adult life really. Um, but it's always pleasing when you do actually see one of your books somewhere. I remember. Um, there was an interview with David Bernstein on um, on Sky about two years ago, mm. and just as a, a sort of filler bit as we as we went to interview, they had him reading the book, and it was my Manchester Greatest City, so that was quite pleasing. <laughs> and and also women women's football as well. I think you sort of said it's not just City; it's Manchester football, but then also women's football as well, which is growing enormously, of course. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of research into that. Um, I was at the first City women's game way back in uh, City Ladies, as it was way back in '88. Um, and I've been interviewing quite a lot of the women who've played for a club since '88. Uh, and ultimately, I intend to write a, a detailed history of, of women's football in the Manchester region, not just about playing, but about being a spectator and, and, and all of that. And City has a great heritage with, with women's football. So I've got the book, thank you very much, and signed as well. So thank you very much for that as well, which is nice. Um, 
and I suppose it, it's different, isn't it? Really, compared to some of the others, it, it, it's got a different feel, but also it's kind of it's kind of a series of features, I suppose, isn't it? Which is not like some of the other books. Would that be fair? Yeah, mo- that, most of my books have been heavyweight sort of histories of the club. One of them's got about half a million words in there, so mm. you know, I, I try to um, tell the stories of City, but but go into a lot of detail. Um, and what I found over the years is that. Well, people don't always have time to read a book like that. People might dip into it. Um, and in a sense, over the last, well, it's it's six years since I last had a, a City book published, which is the longest gap since I started writing, actually. Um, and over that time, people have started to talk about City in ways that I don't particularly like. I'm, I'm not talking about City fans. I'm talking more about rival fans, the media and so on. Um, in many ways, they sort of focus on 1998 and 99 and the, and the position we were in then and assume that's what Manchester City was before the money. And let's face it, as, as painful as the sort of late 90s were, it was a blip. It was it was a, a period of, you know, five years or whatever it was in the end, um, which was painful and difficult to go through. But that wasn't the Manchester City of the 1970s or even the 80s, even though we had struggles, you know, uh, and it certainly wasn't the city of the late 60s or the 1930s or the 1950s, you know, you could go on. Um, so one of the reasons for doing this book was to try and do something that was accessible and something that fans would pick up and, and perhaps use to point score maybe in the pub or, or whatever, but also hopefully, you know, one or two of those people who talk about City in, in negative terms might actually realise the club's got a, a great history and a great series of um, achievements, you know, records, facts that are, are really outstanding. And, and how do you go about researching something like this, Gary? Because it's, you know, you, you go back in, in time, clearly there aren't many people, there's nobody, you know, around from, from the very early days. How, how do you go about researching something like this? It's, it, for me, it's very much about, um, I like to interview people, so that's, you know, that's fine. But like you say, it's, that's not possible with, with some of the early people. So I try to seek out either interviews that have been done with them previously or I try to I just go back to the original newspaper articles and, and reports and share registers and, you know, one one of the areas I've researched recently for, for something I've been doing was actually a, a, a report from a um, what was called at the time a lunatic asylum and this is connected with a, one of the sort of founders of Manchester City and that's something that eventually I'll, I'll publish from. But, you know, you can you, you search... Libraries, archives, all over, all over the world, really, to try and find something. You know, I found stuff in a French archive. I found a film of a derby match from 1912. Um, it's only a few seconds. It's not long, but this derby match was actually at Old Trafford um, in 1912. It was a, an important game, and in the French archive, it's just recorded as match de football Manchester. <laughs> and obviously that's intriguing so I eventually managed to get to see this clip and as soon as I saw this clip I knew it was Old, clip, I knew it was old Trafford um, and then I, I showed a corner being taken and I recognised a few of the City players so you know this City material all over the place and I'm desperate I'm still desperate the 1904 FA Cup final was filmed I, somewhere this film will exist. I'm sure it was shown in pubs in Manchester for about a month after the final, and I, I'm convinced that one day I'll find this film. You never know, you know, hopefully. I mean, you're active on social media, so you, you must have put that message out there before, haven't you, asking asking that question oh, to people? Yeah, 
I've, I've, I've been in touch with archives all over. I've um, mentioned it. I, I, you know, I, I've, I've, I've searched. I, I, the sad thing is, I've, I've got a review of actually this film that was shown of the final. Um, I know the players were also filmed at New Brighton with the FA Cup because um, we've gone to New Brighton because we're playing Everton and stuff. Um, but the film itself just has gone. Same with the 1904 FA Cup final ball. I've managed to try, trace its existence up to the 1960s and then nothing. Um, and and it, I know it was in Burnley. I know which house it was in, in Burnley, in the 1950s, certainly. Um, and then it's gone. So, you know, if anyone happens to have a, a football that's been painted blue and white and says 1904 on it, um, you know, come and talk to me because it could be that ball. Well, well, let us know. Obviously, we're, we're on Twitter as well. Obviously, at City Podcast. If you if you know anything about that, Gary's keen to know. We'll 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 try and help you out there, my friend. Um, what playing devil's advocate a little bit here? You've done all of these books. Um, what's what's new in this book then? So why is this? Is this just kind of an amalgamation of stuff you've done before? Uh, no. sort of a... Yeah, I mean, um, this this sort of stuff presented in a different way. So there's some of that. You know, I, I wanted to try and get some stories. You know, like the story of Bert Troutman. Um, it's always worth talking about because it's significant but there's, there's new material in there and one of the things that I'm most proud of is that I've now got a name for somebody who is supposed to have suggested to create a football team and is supposed to have done it which is different to any name that's been published before um, and the person who's telling this story is somebody who's sometimes been credited with being one of the founders of the club and he's saying wasn't me, actually it was and then he names this person. So that is in there, that's right near the back of the book. Um and I, obviously I don't want to keep the game away now because it's in the book. But but it's one of those things where I'm constantly searching, you know, for years people have talked about um Anna Connell, total, total myth, total, absolute myth, and I've been trying to kill that off for about eight years now. Um but the, we want to find a name and I often say, well, Manchester City isn't about one name, it's about the community of Manchester City and, and the community of St. Mark's Church. But when you find this interview with this um, person who was there in 1880 and he says, this is the person who created this club, you've got to listen to it. You've got to listen. I mean, he also, he did, the, the guy who was interviewed actually said, I did buy one of the balls <laughs> I did buy the ball the first ball or whatever um, so again it shows it's the community you know it's not about one person but uh, yeah so I, I'm always keen to find new stuff I hate you know people who just churn out the same old stuff over and over again with my aim is always to try and make something maybe more accessible which is definitely something in the case of this book um, but also I constantly constantly striving to find new stuff there's so many there's so many stories yet to, to tell on the club you know people think well just just think now if you watch a game there are probably fifty four thousand different opinions of how that game went then there's the match reports which we quite often disagree with or maybe agree with um so when we're talking about something that occurred in say 1940 1950 1920 you know it's it's one of those things that you there's, there's going to be different opinions i mean you've mentioned before is it your father who thinks that peter Doherty was the greatest ever city player absolutely still uh, to this very day absolutely yeah and you know that's the sort that's the sort of thing that that's important because you know people have recently said about naming the stand after after david silver and you know david silver might deserve that but you've only got four football stands and one's you know, already one's already gone, of course, as well. One's one's <laughs> gone. Then you've got Peter Doherty, 
you've got Billy Meredith, you've got Bert Troutman, you've got Sergio Aguero, you've got Vincent Company, you've got Joe Mercy, you've got, you know, Pep Guardiola. You, 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 you've got too many stands, too many names for stands. So I'd, I'd prefer, you know, statues or um, a walk of fame or something, you know, but but um, legendary figures. And I, I asked that question in the book, actually, who's the greatest ever City player? Um, I do say, well, David Silver, but what I try to say is that you cannot, each generation will have its greatest and, and you cannot directly compare the 1930s with 2018. So accept, he was the greatest then, he was the greatest then, he was the greatest, but you'll never get the overall greatest, really. I, I'm interested to talk about Peter Docker briefly, just because of my dad, who, yeah, sure. who, 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 as you know, 98, still around, still a, as passionate as ever been, been to most of those finals that you talk about. He was at that amazing game against Stoke City, he was in the 80-odd thousand in that yeah. crowd as well, um, and, and you know, used to go home and away with, with his mates in, in those days. Doesn't go quite as regularly now, of course. Uh, so so your, your understanding of Peter Doherty, uh, you mentioned him, which is great to hear, um, from your research, well, I'm just interested, because you probably know as much about him as maybe my dad does now. And, and yeah, what, I mean, uh, it, it's, it's incredible because, you know, everyone I interviewed from that sort of generation. So, uh, you know, I've, back in the 90s, I interviewed a guy who was 96. So, you know, he saw Meredith and, you know, Brooke and all those people. Um, and his view was, Dockers, was the best. Um, Joe Mercer had that view. Uh, Danny Blanchflower, the Spurs guy, said he supported Manchester City because of Peter Doherty. Right? Um, so, you know, you get all these legendary figures who, who, who talk about it. The problem, I think, with him was that the war intervened, so we didn't necessarily see him at his best. There's not much film of him. There is a little bit of film, actually. I think he can be seen on... Um, that City played... Berlin, uh, played Germany in Berlin in 1937 and there's a little bit of film of that game surviving and you can just about make him out but obviously you can't see what a player was from a few a second or whatever um, but the war limited his career he fell out with City during the war um, which I think damaged his reputation with the club um, and maybe with some fans and then of course he moved to Derby, yeah, Derby County after the war Interestingly, Derby played Birmingham City in an FA Cup semi-final, I think it was, at Main Road, and it attracted 80,000 people, and most of those people went to see Peter Doherty. So, you know, he is one of these legendary figures. There are, there are a number of them who get forgotten over the years. Um, you know, for me, Billy Meredith is the first star of the club, uh, but who's to say, you know, we all have heroes. When Colin Bell was at his peak... People still talk about Peter Doherty as being a better player. Now, David Silver's, you know, at his peak. Or, yeah, at his peak. And some people say, oh, Colin Bell's the better players still. So it's all about who you, you know, when you fall in love with City and who's your hero at the time. Okay. I wanted to interview this old woman. Um, this was about 2002, I interviewed her when I was doing the Main Road book. And she said, no player, no player will ever be better than Eric Brook. Right. And she'd seen Peter Dawkins. So that was she was absolutely obsessed with Eric Brook. Um, you know, but she started twinkling her eye every time she mentioned his name. So 
But it's a great it's a great debate, as you say. You can't really compare eras. You know, the the the, the pitch, the ball, the kit, the fitness. It you can't you can't really compare. But it's a great discussion to have. And I was talking, as as you're probably aware, with, with Jamie Cooper, um, <clears throat> with that magnificent. I just absolutely I've fallen in love with that picture. I just think it's the greatest yes. thing. And, and you must have your own view as well. And and obviously, my dad was really upset when he heard that Peter Doherty wasn't on there. Uh, Eric Brook was, and 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 so on. But but uh, your, your thoughts on that picture briefly? I mean, I don't want to spend a huge amount of time it's, on that. It's difficult because um, you, you sort of pander into modern tastes as well. So, you know, if we'd have been doing this in 1980, there'd have possibly been more players from the late 60s and 70s. You know, I think Dave Watson, Dennis Stewart, players like that would definitely have got on. Yeah. Um, Peter Barnes, potentially. You know, it, de- it depends on the era. So it, it is difficult. And you've only got so many figures that you can put into something like that. You know, you could... Uh, Max Woosnam could have been on there. Um, Benny Toesland could have been on there. Peter Doherty could have been on there. You know, it goes on and on and on. It's, it's really difficult. I, I, you know, I think in some ways it's good that there are some players from prior to World War Two on there, or prior to the sixties even, because people tend to just pick the great Premier League team or the great. So, to, I'm sort of thinking, well. If Brooke can represent all those players from the 30s, that's great. And if Meredith can represent all those players from before the 30s, that's that's great as well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, I'd have loved to see Dennis Stewart, Dave Watson, all my heroes, and people said before about well, players from the 80s. Um, it's really difficult, but Paul Power. We, we often forget what an influence Paul Power was for, for an entire generation of young players coming through, but also... You know, captain in that 81 Cup final, which we should have won. You know, so, yeah. Do you pick cult heroes? Do you pick greatest players? What do you pick? Controversially, I think I might have dropped King Clancy because although he was a great player, we got relegated a couple of times. And was was King Clancy bigger than, you know, Doherty or Tewart or whoever? Great, great debate, great, discu- great discussion. I love it. Um, just talking about the eras then, and in terms of favourite eras, because I mean, you obviously we go back to Ardwick and the Black Kit and the White Cross and, and so on. Um, do you have a favourite era yourself? I, mean, I, I suspect I know what it is. It's You've mentioned the Chewetts and the Watsons and the Barneses and the Gary Owens, I suppose, because that was you growing up, wasn't it? That yes. was the, and and yeah. just, just personally for a second, mine was the late 60s. You know, that's when I grew up. You know, I, I had the benefit of seeing 68. Uh, first Division Championship, 69 FA Cup, 70 League Cup and European Cup. That's what, as a young lad, that's what I grew up on. And what a team, what players. And, and, and that's now in my heart. And people talk about silver, and we've done it already today. And I still kind of say, sorry, it's Colin Bell still for me today because of that was my youth, that was what I grew up on. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's funny, isn't it? Because you've got to think about when you first fell in love with the club. And for me... As a researcher, I'm fascinated by the 1930s, I've got to say that, um, and I'm also fascinated by the bribe scandal and Meredith and, and City winning the FA Cup because City made Manchester football in City, so I'm fascinated by that. But as a fan, the 70s um, and 80s, the 80s was about going to, for me, suddenly going home and away. I, hadn't, I didn't do that in the 70s, so, um, but 80s home and away, you know, and, and, and going to... Trevor Francis's debut, that was my first away game against Stoke. You know, we had to go, and that was one thing we had to do. Um, but the 70s, people forget what a great decade that was. We only won, well, we started the decade with the Cup Winners' Cup and the League Cup, and then we won the 76 League, League Cup. 
So in terms of trophies, that does not sound a lot compared to today. However, compared to every other club apart from Liverpool, that was incredible. You know, most most clubs would win would be lucky to win a trophy. Um, United were the same as City. They hardly won anything. They won less than City in the seventies. Um, so so that's what it is. Um, you you've, you've got to look at this and you've got to think: Were City far behind everybody else? No. Were City one of the big four or five clubs? Absolutely. From seventy-five to relegation eighty-three, City were one of the top three or four best support clubs every year. And the only two that tended to beat them, Everton sometimes came third, but not often. And Spurs were close at one point. But it was United and Liverpool. Liverpool were winning everything. And United, we all you know, we all know about the, the sort of support United had. Um, I, I, in the book, there's a piece I've, I've done, which is where City was on relegation day 1983 in terms of status. And I, I'm quite keen on... on promoting this really because people talk about City as a, a failed club but on relegation day in 1983 we had spent something like seven seasons more than Manchester United in the top flight right so that's significant in my opinion because people talk about City as being a yo-yo club or whatever well we spent you know all that time um, the only teams to beat us were Arsenal, Everton, Liverpool and I think Aston Villa right so that's hugely significant we were only on the day we got relegated. We were only something like three trophies behind Manchester United in terms of success. Well, who'd have ever expected that? Now, obviously, because of the Ferguson years, it's 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 gone crazy, really. Um, but where we suffered was our worst ever period on the pitch in the late nineties. Was the same time as a certain other club was finding its greatest ever era, and so it was easy to talk about failure and success in that city. But we, our record was still incredible compared to almost every other club. Take United, Liverpool, and perhaps Arsenal out of it. And we are typical of everything. And another point I labour on about, um, you know, we won a major European trophy before Liverpool. People forget that when we talk about heritage. We won a major trophy before Manchester United. About We won a major trophy around about 30 years before Arsenal. And 50 years before Chelsea. So, you know, this is one of the reasons why I've done this book, really, to try and get this message out there. And, and why is it, and, and you've talked a lot about that, and, and, and I, can, I can hear your passion and you're desperate to get that message out there. Why is it that people describe us as this yo-yo club? Because I also recognise the success that we had in my lifetime. My dad talks about the success we had in the 30s and in the 50s and so on. And we were, we were one of the big clubs and we are. Clearly today, it's, we'll come on to that, I'm sure, later. But, but why is it that people remember and see and always talk, other fans talk about us being that yo-yo club, which is a relatively short space of time within our whole history? Why is that? Yeah, I, I think... I don't think we've helped ourselves. I think maybe the club, because we've, the club's been transformed, um, uh, and I'm not sort of labelling individuals here, it's just the general mood. If you think about it, when, for example, um, Francis Lee took over the club, we were all quite keen to talk about the failures of Peter Swells' time as chairman. And, you know, I've often talked about this, and I, I interviewed Peter Swells about this, um, and I let him know what I was thinking about some of these times. But... For most of the 70s, when Swales was in charge, we were a major club and we were growing, constantly growing. It was those those problems in the 80s and it was also allowing Malcolm Allison to spend on players and, and stuff that caused the financial problems. So there's that. Um, so when, when the takeover happened in the mid-90s, 
it was easy for us all to say we were a failed club and we're going to be great now. And then, of course, the club failed in the late 90s. Things off the pitch improved, but the club, in terms of what mattered on the pitch, we failed. So then when the ownership changes again and we've got new directors and new chair, it's easy to say we failed before and now we're going to do something. And that continues, if you like, right the way through until the modern era when we had been a failed club in the late 90s. But from 2002, we were a regular in the Premier League. Our crowds were improving. You know, we were getting our best support. Um, we didn't challenge for a trophy. We got to those quarterfinals, which really hurt against West Ham and, and Blackburn. Um, but we didn't challenge for a major trophy, so we weren't there. But that may have come, may have come. But the gap between rich and poor was so great by the time we get to 2002 that you needed investment to catch up. So, jump back to the 1990s and we finished fifth two years running and that was at a time just before the Premier just around the time the Premier League was, was coming into to play really and at that point there wasn't a single English team that you expected to dominate if we if you're truthful you look at 1991 92 that sort of period you've got teams like Leeds you've got Blackburn changing everything with the, the money that they had You've got Aston Villa were trying to make a challenge. City were trying to make a challenge. United obviously made, made a bit of a challenge. But Liverpool had virtually gone. Arsenal were on the way out to some extent. Um, so any one of our teams could have found success. We all know which one did. And then when, once you've won one trophy and two trophies and three trophies in the league, it carries on. Whereas teams like Leeds and Blackburn couldn't sustain it, really. Um, but it could have been us. You know, it could easily have been us. And we forget the failure was 96 to 2002, six years maximum. And even part of that was the resurgence coming back, you know, the rebirth of the club. So six years. The failures in the 80s, the two relegations in the 80s, were extremely bad and really upset. I, you know, I will never forget how I felt against Luton when Reddy Antich scored because that was the worst I'd ever experienced at that point. And I was set in Austin, just bit, so I'm on the match for day film, which really upsets me as well. Um, but... <laughs> But the thing about that was those we felt at the time, when every time we came back, we felt it was a blip. We could do it. And we had young players and we had you know experience and, and we could do it. We knew we were skimped compared to some of the other clubs, but we were no worse than Wolves or Le- Leeds or whoever it was. And on Newcastle, you know, other teams that were skimped, but had loyal fans at the time. Uh, and, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't failure. You know, it wasn't failure until until that late nineties period. Obviously, we, we we know about Sheikh Mansour and, and and the current sort of sort of history, if you like, is just amazing for a city fan just to be enjoying um, what we're what we're enjoying the sort of the, the players we have, the manager we have, um, the sort of football that we're playing is just a joy to behold, and, and we're all enjoying that. Do you think going back to the sort of chairman? Do you think David Bernstein gets the credit? That, that he deserves. Would you say he was a catalyst, or, or would you say that other people, other chairmen in that role, take more credit? I'm just thinking about the, the negotiations on the ground and, and, and all those other things that he was involved in. Yeah, Does he I get the credit? It, do you think? It, yeah, it's a, you've got to sort of trace it back. I think there's two people who deserve much more credit than they get, and that was David Bernstein and Chris Bird. Yeah, completely different characters. You know, Bernstein was very much as um, a financial, controlled, um, well, 
educated, distinguished type of figure. Chris Bird was basically a dynamic marketing type guy, city fan, passionate city fan, absolutely passionate city fan. Um, came from Hattersley Hyde, you know, um, sort of knew what it was like to stand on the kickbacks and stuff. And the two of them working together, in a sense, a bit like Mercer and Allison, you know, opposites, if you like, but they achieve so much. And so Bernstein might think about something to do with the financial club and, and, and manage that well. And then Chris Bird might come in and say, do you know what we need to do? We need to get such and such a body to go to that support branch there because we need to increase support in that area or, or, or whatever. And so the two of them work well. And then unfortunately, it all unraveled really with the Robbie Fowler signing when there's all the debate about can we afford to spend this money and, 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 and who'd have expected that within weeks really of that of happening, both Bernstein and Bird disappeared. So neither of them got the credit for the new stadium that we should have done because they both put in an awful lot of work behind that. Um, and it was then, well, once we'd lost that sort of control and the dy- dynamism or, or whatever of Chris Bird, we we were just another club, if you like, for a while, even though we moved. I, I sort of tend to think that had Bernstein and Bird both stayed, they may have disagreed, I don't know. I don't know what went on behind the scenes, but the two of them may well have kept us in a position. Having said that, you've also got to think, everything that's happened, all the negatives, all the changes, led to us being in a position where we could be taken over. So had we actually found success earlier, had we done something a bit different, then we may never have got a shake. So in the end, you know, I suppose the pain of all of those sort of things was worth it. And, and talking about the shake and talking about the money and talking about how it is unrecognisable as a club, um, as a ground, as a facility. I mean, that investment that's gone into the whole of East Manchester and the employment of local people and all the stuff that we know about is just unrecognisable. Where, where, where's football going? I'm interested, you know, you, you've, you look back a lot, but I suspect you must also kind of look forward as well, Gary, and, and try and predict what's happening. I, I just, if we would have said we would have gone to a stadium that looks like that with the facilities, a mate of mine, actually, just as an aside, is working at the moment on, on White Hart Lane and is installing 1,800 television screens. You know, just a stupid fact, you know, but, but he's, you know, just the access to... to, to, to you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's just unrecognisable. What, what's your prediction for what's going to happen? The, mo- the, money can't, the money can't continue. Players' wages can't keep going up. Or maybe, can they? I mean, is, well, it going to, is it going to burst at some stage? What's going to happen? Well, you know, in the 1960s, when they talked about maximum wage being abolished and stuff like that, they said football cannot continue. It'll self-destruct. It'll, you know, the clubs will go bust and stuff. In the 1980s, the Tottenham, one of the Tottenham directors, when we were talking about creating a Super League, which became a Premier League, in the 1980s, a Tottenham director basically said, we've got too many clubs, we need to get rid of some of these clubs. And he was quite openly saying, you know, get rid, you don't need all these professional clubs. So, you know, I think these sort of things have, have gone in, in cycles. Um, if you think back to the late 70s, early 80s, the million-pound players, which City spent, you know, Peter Swales once boasted to me we were the first team to have three separate one to sign three separate one million pound players, which is true. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, we were, but then <laughs> we we were in such a financial state that we couldn't sign another one for six, no, eight years, eight years. And um, and I think so. The bubble sort of burst a little bit with million pound players, 
but only for a few years. And then by the end of the 80s, it was back bigger than ever, bigger than ever, really. Um, I, when the takeover first happened, I was lucky enough to meet Khaldun on his first day in Manchester. He came 20, about the 20th of September. It was the weekend they actually formally took over the club. And um, I was asked by Gary Cook to meet someone, he wouldn't say you, but to talk about the history of a club. And one of the reasons why I do so much on the history is because I want to, I want to predict the future, I want to see the future, you know, understand where you've come from helps you go forward. And I think this is something the club needs, you know, quite often needs, every football club needs this. So with, um, with, with, that day, I went and see Caldoun, and the first question he asked me, um, and I was introduced and told he was going to be the new chairman, was how is this football club formed? How and why? You know, he then talked, we talked about loads of things, but but he also said, I managed to ask him a couple of questions and sort of asked what their plans were, and obviously he wasn't going to give me detailed plans, but but he basically said, we're not just investing in the football club, and you know, um, he said something like people will talk about us buying players like they have done you know about Mourinho he said but our investment will be to create our own players and to create a, a sustainable football club and at the time I thought yeah of course <laughs> yeah, you, you, course. Would, you would say that yeah yeah but but then about a year after that I did the big book of City and in this book now the folklore book I, I include a page I include a page where I'm talking about this sort of page that I did in the Big Book of City. And the idea was that I looked forward sort of 10 years. And so this was nine years ago. So I thought, time to say something. And I predicted that the investment would open up the Premier League a bit more because we'd had four teams, more or less, that were constantly challenging. You know, occasionally somebody might slip into it, but usually four teams. Um, with City's investment, surely then that's going to mean there's five teams competing for four Champions League places, so someone's going to lose out every year, which is obviously a thing. But not only that, because you all take points off each other, then a sixth team might come into it, a seventh team. I made the mistake of saying Everton, Aston Villa. I should have said Tottenham. <laughs> but but if you think about it, over the last few years, United have lost away a bit, but that's not just because they've changed manager. It's because other teams have got better. You know, United, the points they they have had in some of these seasons could have won the league. Right? Um, Tottenham have obviously had a challenge. Leicester won the league. Liverpool have come back to some extent. But there are other teams that can shake up football a little bit. So I'm actually positive that as other clubs catch up, then um, the leagues can get more and more competitive, which may be a bad thing for City in some ways, but it actually means the Premier League's more competitive, so that's a good thing in a, you know, in a strange way. In terms of the actual money, I think some owners will want to get a bigger return. So I cannot imagine that the team that the the big four team from the past years that finishes fifth or sixth, like Arsenal might do, or United might do, or whatever. I cannot imagine that they'll be satisfied with that. So what do they do? Do they either invest more money or do they pull out? And maybe they pull out. And if you pull out that could then cause a, a you know a sort of ripple effect. You don't you don't know what's gonna happen. Or another option, would they create another league? Uh, a permanent European league with no promotion and relegation, or a global league? And I actually think the way City are going with New York City, you know, New York City, I've been to see a few games there, it's an incredible organization. 
passionate fans, really positive. But the league that New York City play in will never be, or it's unlikely ever to be as big as the Premier League. So does a team like New York City try to compete against Barcelona, against Madrid, against United, against whoever? Um, and I think that sort of thing may happen in the future. You know, there may turn out to be some sort of global competition. Um, so I don't know. But, you know, I've, I've got a book on the shelf here from the 1950s where it's looking forward to the year 2000 and it claims we'll be, play, we'll be playing on the moon and, you know, we're in spacesuits and stuff like that. So anything, anything's possible, isn't it? <laughs> but, but being serious for a second, so if, we, if we're going to sort of push you for a prediction, so European League, Global League, in 10 years, 20 years? Give, give us your prediction now, Gary. Just, just, just I think, for a bit of fun. Yeah, I, I honestly think the European League will be, it might take 10 years because it's, it's a bit sensitive. Um, but within that same time frame, I think there'll be a, a, a global competition of some sort. Um, I know we've had World Club Championships before, but something that's a bit more like, maybe like the Champions League, but, but you know, with a set number of fixtures guaranteed. Maybe it's regionalised to some extent. I don't know, but I can see I can see something like that actually occurring within within a decade. Yeah, I mean, look at look what's happened to football in the last decade. Exactly. Nobody would have expected United to sort of fall away in the way they have. Nobody would have expected Liverpool to actually come back as a force potentially. Um, so yeah, anything's possible. Can we just talk about the current day for a second? I touched on it earlier on, just because of Pep and, and everything that's going on. Do we need to win the Champions League? Do we need to win it this year? What, what, what's your view on that? The, the question I know everybody's talking about. Most City fans I talk to say, no, back-to-back Premier Leagues is more important to establish ourselves. We've never done that. Is that kind of where you sit? Is that what you see as being? Or, or, or would you say Champions as a, League's more as, important? As a, as a fan, the Premier League is still the, the number one for me. But standing back from that and looking at City as if you are the owner of City or somebody who's got a significant interest, the Champions League has to be won. Whether it's this year or next year, you know, but it has to be. Unfortunately, the way football's changed, you know, the way football's changed since we won the Cup in this Cup in 1970 is that the European games was, were glamorous and a bonus. And, and you know, we all English clubs supported other English clubs in Europe. We all wanted Liverpool to win the European Cup in the 70s and, and so on, right? But now it's more about our club. It's more about what our club achieves. And unfortunately, the way football's gone, the Champions League is the number one. And so if we never win the Champions League, we will never be regarded as one of Europe's elite clubs. That's the way it is. Um there's another side to that as well. If you think about it, if we actually managed to win the Champions League, say, five years in a row, suddenly we're the most successful English club in Europe. Not with Liverpool, but, you know, suddenly we eclipse Manchester United. And I know that that's nonsense in, you know, in terms of history. But in terms of modern-day perceptions of football, the Champions League is number one. And there are, you know, as City fans, we're not quite there yet. But, you know, people talked about our attendance against Leon and and said five thousand. It's rubbish. well, it's not rubbish. It's a fantastic attendance. In two thousand sixteen, I think it was, we were the sixth best supported Champions League club. And what I mean by that is all attendance in the Champions League games, we were something like six. And the only teams above us were Barcelona, United, um, Madrid, and Bayern Munich, and 
was it Arsenal? But basically, teams with bigger stadiums, but also teams that found major European success within the last 15, 20 years. We haven't had major European success for nearly 50 years. So we've lost, we've, we've sort of, we've lost something, if you like. We need to get that back. But, I don't know, for me, winning the Premier League is still number one. With your doctor Gary James hat on for a second now and, and, and your Manchester football historian hat on, take the sky blue spectacles off for a second, uh, what does City need to do to become the bigger club? Because I think we'd have to accept um, that Stretford are the bigger club at the moment. How do, what do we, you've mentioned winning five champions. Do we really need to win five Champions League? What, what do we need to do for City to be the bigger club? Do you know what? All we need to do is achieve more than United for the next decade. Because, I mean, if United dropped away and, and didn't win a trophy for 10 years, we wouldn't even need to do that. Because in some ways, the, the, the strength of football today, taking support, local support out of it for a minute, the, the global power of football is that if you're winning trophies, if you're the, the team that people want to see around the world, you're going to make more money. You're going to get the bigger sponsors. You're going to get that. So you look at the way our sponsorship and our income has changed. And I know people say, oh, it's come from Abu Dhabi. A lot of the companies we get money from are not from Abu Dhabi at all. And even if they disappear, other companies like Coca-Cola might come in and, and sponsors or Chevrolet, whoever it is, right? So if you're a prominent football team, it's easier and quicker now to create that global image and that global brand and that glo- you know all of that sort of stuff and this is stuff as a football fan it, it sort of you know it's difficult to talk about but but standing back as a sort of analyst and you look at this and you think the way the, the way city grew the way chelsea grew because we chelsea were much lower than us in 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 real terms in support terms and stuff like that the way both chelsea grew into a global brand the way united did, and the way we have done in the last decade shows you that the the pace is, is quicker than it ever was you know it took a lot for the Manchester United that suffered the Munich crash to become this global brand right, and this global club. Um, their crowds dropped after Munich. People forget this. They, lasted, they were good for a year and then they dropped to lower levels and then it, it was winning the European Cup that, that cemented their name, really. Um, for City, if we continue to challenge, play exciting football and keep on building and doing things like that Amazon documentary, it just boosts that global thing. In terms of local support, it's difficult. It's generational. We, and you, I know you played quite a big part in this back in the 70s, the Junior Blues made people so in love with the club. It generates support. People who were not necessarily City families would take their kids to the Junior Blues and become City families. And, that, and the Junior Blues was such an important thing. And the reason I say the Junior Blues were important, it wasn't necessarily important in the 70s. It was important in the 80s when we got relegated. Yeah. The loyalty in you know, my generation were the people who'd been going to Junior Blues meetings. And then in the 90s, they were the ones who were home and away. So our support stayed as high as it was in those 1890s because of the loyalty created by the Junior Blues and probably other initiatives. But it was definitely that, in my mind, it was that. Uh, and I intend to write more about that at some point in the future, but uh, definitely that. In the 90s, the Junior Blues lost its way a bit. It wasn't quite the th- big thing it was 
probably because the club had so many other things to worry about, to be honest, but it probably wasn't as strong as it was. And certainly in the 2000s, it, it was weakened still. I mean, it, it, it stopped, you know, became lift for City and, and so on. Um, the 90s was actually the period when we needed it most because in the 1990s, if you were a young child growing up in Manchester, do you go and support the team whose stadium is full, so I can't get in, you know, City, I can't get into City. I'm a young kid, I can't get into City because the stadium is actually full, but they're playing at the third tier of football, right? Or I can go to Old Trafford because the stadium isn't quite full and they're winning trophies. Because you could, you know, it would, it's, it's, people don't get this now, but it was easier to get a ticket for Old Trafford around about 98 than it was to get one for City. It's, it's not for every game, obviously, but for certain games. So, United are winning all the trophies. Your friends at school are talking about United. You want to be associated with Gloria. It's It takes a lot to support City. And so any, any fans from that, any fan who first went in the late 90s, you know, needs respect for the start. Um, but, it does mean that we lost the generation in my mind. And that's the generation that now would be making most of the noise on match day because typically you talk about teens to late 20s are the more, more vocal fans. Um, and so it's that gen- and that's the generation that should be going to all away games. But if you look at the average age of our away support, it's a little bit older than perhaps it should be. Um, and so it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some time. Now, the positive thing is that the current generation of fans are seeing success at City and can get tickets for European games if you want to, you know, and, and, and League Cup games and stuff. So the current, the youngest generation now, you know, the sort of five-year-olds to 15-year-olds are probably turning more to City than United. And that does mean that in 10 years' time, we'll have a boost. So... You know, if I was at City and planning um, stadium expansions, I'd be looking 10 years from now, we need a bigger stadium because because that group are going to be here. Us older fans are still going to be here and hopefully every younger fan is going to come our way. Um, but but we need the Junior Blues back. That's I'm, one thing we need. I'm, I'm really chuffed you mentioned the Junior Blues. I played a very small part. I mean, our friend Roger Reed, Jesse, yeah. Ward, Jesse Ward and... and, and uh, Sort of Mr. Ian Niven Senior, that they were the people who really put that in place and did a great job. I supported them and I helped them. It was a pleasure and a joy to do that. But I think you know Roger and Jesse were, were just awesome in, in getting that whole thing going. Um, bring us up right up to date. Um, I just want to talk about Pep finally um, because we love him. Uh, he just you mentioned the Amazon documentary. I mean, he is forensic. Is is a word I'm, I use when I describe him now. And just your reflections on him. I mean. He's the I'm, a working assumption here. He's the greatest manager on the planet, in my view. Uh, I don't know if you share that. And you know, is he going to be here for another year, two years? Are we going to have him for five years? What, what again? Give us some insight and some predictions about Pep. Then, oh, it's a difficult one because it doesn't seem to stay long, does it? At, at places, but I, I sort of, I have this feeling that this is a, a lot of modern managers don't seem to understand what perhaps Alex Ferguson understood, that must be understood, that Joe Mercer understood and Bill Shankly. Um, and that is that if you can take a team and become, create its greatest era or, you know, keep the success going, you have cemented your name in football history forevermore. 
and you have become this legendary figure at a club. You know, Ferguson will always be the man that took United to that level. Um, and Joe Mercer, for us, will always be a man who took, who took City to that level. Unfortunately, with Mercer, obviously, it, it, it ended. The club did not look after him in the way that perhaps we should have done. If I was Pep, I'd be saying, yeah, I could be the man who, who made Manchester City. And we know, you know, it's not about one man and it's not about making Manchester City because we, we were already here. But but in terms of making it a global force, making it champions of Europe, champions of whatever, Pep could do that. And I think he should try and stay for five years, ten years, whatever suits him. He's still young. Um, I would manage him carefully if I was sitting I would look. And if he starts to get to the stage where he says, do you know what, I've had enough... Right, take a break. Take a break, Pep, for a year. Have a year off. You know, come back to us in a year's time. And I'd be looking at trying to keep him at that club for as long as possible. Obviously, as Mourinho shows, it doesn't matter how great you are as a manager, you can soon lose it as well. So we have to bear that in mind. You know, Malcolm Elson, great first time, second time, mm, not so great. So you have to bear that in mind. But I think with, with City, the way we're structured now... Pep has got the best training facilities on the planet. He's got the, the sort of best management team for him, you know, the people that work, that trust him, around him. He knows the finances there. He knows that the support is building um, and that things will get better on match day. Um, and I think, yeah, uh, stay forever. I, think he, I do think he's the greatest manager on the planet. But if he goes, I also think that City have now got the structure in place that the academy will continue, that, you know, everything else will continue. And who knows, maybe someone like Vincent Company decides, oh, you know what, I think it's time I, I moved in that direction. And what better successor would you have than Vincent Company? Listen, uh, I, I deliberately haven't gone into the book in any detail, so I think people should buy it and read it. You know, there's stuff about the kit. I just, I, I'm stupid about the kit. I just get something <laughs> actually about, and, and interestingly about the whole sky blue bit. I'm not going to give it away. As you said, people should buy the book. Um, it's Manchester City folklore: what every blue needs to know. Um, it's brilliant, Gary. Um, I, I, I love dipping into it. I haven't read it, you know, from one to one to uh, two hundred two hundred and odd. I dip into it, uh, and I think it's brilliant. I, I thoroughly enjoyed our chat. Um, brilliant. We should do it again sometime. How do people get yeah. hold of the book finally, Gary? Just, just. Well, it's, it's in Waterstones and Amazon and places like that. And the publisher's um, website is conquereditions.co.uk, so you can get that. And if you follow me on Twitter, which is at Gary James Writer, I can uh, yeah, I post the links to it. Um, but the book, I really loved doing the book, and I wanted people. I don't want people to read it from cover to cover. I do want people to dip into it, you know. And there's some great pictures of the yellow kit in the 60s, you know, which people forget. I talk about Maroon as well. Again, people started to forget that Maroon is our traditional away colour. You know, it's not purple, it's not cherry blossom or whatever colour, whatever the colour being then. It's Maroon. So let's use Maroon. And and I'd love to see Maroon back on the socks and on the numbers maybe and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, I've, I've loved it. And I've enjoyed the chat as well. Excellent. Fantastic. Um, listen, huge thanks to Dr. Gary James. This is Nigel Rothband saying thanks for listening and we'll talk to you all very soon. Sports Social Podcast Network.